0: Thank you. The jury is definitely still out on whether obesity is a risk factor for long COVID. But if you sort of think about the heterogeneity of obesity and the heterogeneity of long COVID, I would suspect that once we really begin to describe carefully what happens with, for example, the development of diabetes in the post-COVID time period, I would not be surprised if that type of longer term consequence is associated with pre existing obesity.
1: That was Dr. Monica Safford, John J. Cooper Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine. Dr. Safford is a clinician investigator with clinical expertise in preventative health care, treatment of acute and chronic illness, and coordination of care for those with chronic diseases. She was also one of the first researchers to find a connection between obesity and COVID-19. You're listening to Weight Matters, where we unpack the science behind our weight, why it matters, and the effects it has on our health, psychology, and society. This season, join Drs. Louis Aroni and Catherine Saunders, leading experts in the field of obesity medicine and co-founders of IntelliHealth, as they tackle the many ways weight impacts our broader health and along with experts in the field, explore innovative strategies for preventing and treating obesity. In this episode, Dr. Safford shares her findings on the link between obesity and severe cases of COVID-19. She also explains what the pandemic has taught us about health equity and the importance of providing patients with the information they need to advocate for themselves. We're glad to have you along for this journey. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dive in.
2: I'm Dr. Katherine Saunders here with Dr. Louis Aroni, and we are excited to welcome everybody to this episode of the Weight Matters podcast, where we are fortunate to have Dr. Monica Safford. We will be talking about the new normal, discussing how obesity and COVID-19 interact, and the implications for the future of treatment and the new urgency to mitigate population risks. Dr. Monica Safford is the John J. Cooper Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine. Dr. Safford, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. We would love to start talking about... The link between obesity and COVID-19, since you were involved from the very, very beginning when we really didn't understand what was going on with COVID, um, just immediately starting to look at the data in the hospital at Weill Cornell and elsewhere, um, you were one of the first researchers to to really find this connection that surprised many people, but not others, um, that there is a connection between obesity and COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and, and the main findings? Sure, I'd be happy to.
0: So, it, you know, if you recall, it's really amazing. We're right here at the um, two-year mark. And if we think back what was going on in New York City at that time, it was really pretty frightening how we had a very unexpected uptick in, in cases Everybody was in a, in an area of, of science that no one had ever been in before, so it was this mad frenzy to try to collect as much data as we possibly could in New York City, because New York was the first place in the United States where it really took off like wildfire. Very quickly, within just a few days, we noticed, the clinicians noticed, that there were just a disproportionate number of obese patients, especially young patients. And that's how a lot of clinical science is sparked, is you talk to the physicians on the front line, and then you can follow up sort of on clinical hunches. And we mobilized an army of furloughed medical students. If you recall, in New York City especially, but eventually nationwide, there was this massive shortage of personal protective equipment. And so the decision was made to ask medical students not to come on the wards for their learning, uh, which they were a little bit disgruntled by, understandably so. So we took this opportunity and asked them to observe the medical record as it was happening sort of in real time. We assigned each student several cases, and they just followed them from the time that they were admitted to the time that they were discharged. And We collected a lot of data that way very, very quickly, and that, of course, included the patient's obesity status, their weight, and their height. And we definitely found in that very early report that obesity was a risk factor for more severe disease. So we had many patients in the intensive care unit and definitely we found that obesity was a risk factor for ending up in the intensive care unit, really regardless of age. And that was the worrisome thing, was that there were so many young people who were being affected. And this is where our obesity epidemic in the United States and also elsewhere around the world was making us really concerned because... A very large proportion of the U.S. population, estimated about 40%, uh, have obesity. So we were really, really worried and trying to get that word out as quickly as possible. In a little bit more of a measured fashion, I collaborated with some of our colleagues who had lab animal laboratories, specifically James Lowe, who was a researcher with beta cells in the pancreas. And he noticed that calcium channels were very quickly identified as the route of entry of the coronavirus into cells. And as a researcher of beta cells, he noted that beta cells were one of the few cells in the human body that contained every kind of calcium channel that we have. And he thought, well, maybe we can learn something from studying this coronavirus and beta cells in the pancreas using his animal model. And what very quickly also came to the fore was not only was obesity a risk, but a lot of patients had new diabetes and severe diabetes that hadn't been recognized or diagnosed before. So this was another curiosity. And he theorized that this was sort of a type 1 diabetes picture, where the beta cells might be attacked by this virus. And we essentially have pancreatic failure from the insulin perspective. And what we found was the exact opposite. It was not a picture of beta cell failure, but rather adipocyte attack and insulin resistance at the periphery. So this also potentially, because of the adipocyte attack, could explain why obesity was an independent risk factor. Uh, So very interesting story, sort of from the first clinical observations to more of a mechanistic exploration of what could be contributing to these risks that obesity incurs for people who contract COVID.
3: One of the most striking findings that I recall from, from one of the earliest papers was the mean age of people who are hospitalized and in the intensive care unit. And I'd like you to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 72 years of age for people in the normal weight range and 58 years of age for those with obesity. Are those numbers about right?
0: That's about right. That was the shocking thing. I remember going out to Queens, and practically everybody in the intensive care unit had obesity, and many of them were under the age of 40. So it was this really shocking thing where we're very accustomed to seeing people nearing the end of life requiring this kind of, you know, intensive care. And to see all these young people there was just really shocking.
3: Yes. And, you know, I think that one of the things that's happened is it's kind of galvanized an understanding of the risk associated With obesity. So we're seeing organizations like insurance companies who heretofore had had pretty much ignored obesity because it's so common and they did not feel that there was uh, enormous health risk associated with it. It was really the diabetes, the hypertension, the heart disease. But with this, I think it really became clear that obesity itself was the driving factor.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, we're we're still learning a lot about the molecular mechanisms and the damage that is created by this infection. But you're absolutely right. You know, in fact, if you look at obesity and cardiovascular disease, in normal times, that's what I was studying. <laughs> I'm not an infectious disease person, but we sort of dropped everything to study as much as we could with COVID when the pandemic hit us. But normally in cardiovascular disease, we often say that obesity is a risk factor, but it's not that strong a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Actually, diabetes is a pretty strong one. Smoking cigarettes is a much stronger one. Hypertension is stronger. And in fact, if you look at, subpopulations such as women or Black individuals, it's hard to find an association in observational data between obesity and cardiovascular disease. So it's clear that there's a metabolic derangement that is increasing risk, but it isn't obesity or the weight of the person per se. It's more that obesity is a marker for something that is going on in the organism that is not very good for us. Uh, but here, it looked like it was specifically adipocytes that were creating a problem. So obese patients, people with obesity, that was the causal pathway. It was not just a bystander phenomenon. Hmm. It's been
2: fascinating to see the developments over the last two years and in our understanding of these two complex conditions. I want to talk a little bit about health inequities because I know that's a subject that you're very passionate about. With obesity, you know, obviously we see that obesity disproportionately affects people in different ways and and really highlights uh, racial and socioeconomic disparities. And, and we're seeing the same from COVID. What have we learned in terms of the socioeconomic and racial disparities in treatment and what insights do you have into increasing access to needed resources in terms of vaccines or treatment in underserved
0: communities? That continues to be a really big challenge for us. I mean, it emerged very, very quickly in New York City where in retrospect, of course, everybody was doing the best that they could. But in retrospect, we did make several mistakes. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we made was this order to shelter in place without having a larger plan. So we know that people who live in socially marginalized communities and disadvantaged communities are at much higher risk of getting extra weight, poor health behaviors. There's lots of ad campaigns that sell hawk particular cigarette brands to especially Black communities. Food availability is healthy foods not very available in a lot of poor communities. Um, And there's a lot of crowding. Many poorer families have extended families under one roof, very few rooms. And with this shelter in place order, These are also the the very crowded neighborhoods were the ones where essential workers lived. So there was a lot of movement around. When people were being asked, there were, of course, these exceptions for essential workers. And those were the people in the very neighborhoods that were the hardest hit who had to move around and had to take public transportation and become exposed. This was also before we recognized the value of wearing masks. And so the rate of transmission and infection was much higher in poor communities with a lot of crowding and a lot of minorities, not because they're minorities, but just because of the way our social structure has created living circumstances for them. So we saw gigantic numbers in certain zip codes that were the poorest zip codes And then, of course, again, a sort of a social determinant, what is the quality of the hospitals that are available in these poor neighborhoods, usually not the best quality hospitals. And we definitely saw that the hospitals that were overwhelmed the quickest and for the longest were the ones that were located in the poorest neighborhoods. So you had this conflagration of risk factors where you had underlying chronic diseases like obesity diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, all of which the CDC has listed as chronic conditions that are sensitive to social determinants of health, so much more common in poor communities. So these chronic diseases were already more prevalent. Then we had crowding, so we had greater transmission. Then we had essential workers in greater numbers in these communities, so more transmission and more opportunities for transmission and the access to healthcare. So it was all of these factors converging in the in the pandemic, and the result was that African-Americans, for example, had two to four times the mortality from COVID compared to white people. It was really a tragedy.
3: Yeah, really um, a difficult time, and you know, fortunately, we're, we're starting to come through that, and hopefully we'll be better prepared for the next infectious pandemic but we still have the obesity pandemic with us. One of the interesting studies I've seen since the pandemic started was a study from bariatric surgeons, which, you know, this is not a randomized trial, but it suggested that there was uh, less of a risk of severe COVID, same risk of getting COVID, but less of a risk of severe COVID in people who had had bariatric surgery compared to people who were at, the initial starting weight that those people had had. So, you know, there, there is, but it's interesting because the fat cells are still there, but for some reason they're not being infected when, in, you know, inflammatory processes we know aren't as strong. There are a number of possible mechanisms by which this could happen, but then there are others where there's absolutely no difference.
0: Yes. In fact, you know, in our early study, this was on, you know, fewer than 400 people. I mean, at the time, it was the largest study of a community-based sample in the United States. Within, We got this published as a letter in the New England Journal six weeks after the first patient crossed our threshold. So it was really a blitzkrieg of a study. But in that study, we saw obesity definitely as a risk factor, but we did not see it as a risk factor for mortality. So obesity landed you in the intensive care unit on a ventilator more often, but once you got to the intensive care unit, we did not observe a difference in mortality. That, in the meantime... You know, there have been meta-analyses and studies with hundreds of thousands of patients that have seen or have observed an excess mortality, uh, about almost 50% higher mortality if you look at sort of the the worldwide experience with the risk of, you know, when you have obesity and you happen to contract COVID. So, you know, I just want to make sure that we are Reiterating how incredibly important it is to counsel patients on the importance of vaccination and very simple strategies like wearing masks in public and washing hands carefully, uh, especially before eating. And I, you know, we're sort of exiting the most intense phase of this pandemic with any luck at all. But one of the questions that a lot of our patients have for us is, "I'm at high risk. I have obesity. What do I do? What should I be doing?" And I'm certainly telling people, don't let up, you know, continue to take precautions, wear masks, make sure you're fully vaccinated and boosted. You know, I don't think there was a switch that happened from one day to the next that now the pandemic is over. Certainly for high risk people, it's still quite advisable and sane to continue to take precautions for the foreseeable future.
2: Something that we've talked about before that I think is really interesting, and as you've said, it doesn't get as much attention as it should, is what's happening right now with long COVID, which is something that many, many, many people are struggling with, and a subset of those people are really struggling with, and it's an incredibly frustrating condition because we just don't understand still what is going on completely. I know we don't know too much about the correlation between obesity and long COVID, but I'd love to hear your ex commentary about what's going on with long COVID, where are we now, what needs to be done to, to figure out more about the pathophysiology and the treatment and people who are listening who have long COVID, what can we tell them, what can they do? Um, this is really such a big topic right now that needs more attention.
0: You know, long COVID is definitely sort of the next chapter here. You talk about obesity being heterogeneous. This long-term consequences of COVID are definitely still being worked out. So, you know, it sort of sits in two general camps seem to be evolving One is the risk that's incurred by actual cellular damage and retention of the virus in various body tissues and continue to wreak havoc. So there's this sort of residual tissue. You can see in there have been a number of papers that show this, for example, in the intestinal lining. Months after the initial infection, some people continue to harbor the virus and it continues to cause harm. The second is much more likely to be an autoimmune process that is not dissimilar to other post-viral autoimmune processes that are triggered. And coronaviruses, actually the whole family of coronaviruses, are more likely to cause this post-viral autoimmune phenomenon. And there is some emerging evidence. Obviously, we don't know how long these symptoms last. We're only two years into the pandemic. But one of the things that sort of gets to the tissue damage and then the consequences, the longer-term consequences of the tissue damage is definitely the possibility that there will be more people diagnosed with diabetes. So that this may be very similar to what happens with statins, where you have an association with diabetes, where it takes about eight years that you already meet criteria for diabetes before you're diagnosed because it's such a insidious onset in many people, asymptomatic for many, many years. But it's probably people who are sort of on their way to insulin resistance, pre-diabetes, not yet recognized, and they're sort of pushed over the edge by contracting COVID. So this gets to the adipocyte attack and all of these. Diabetes cases that we were seeing, including diabetic ketoacidosis in people without a previous diagnosis of, of diabetes when they were in the intensive care unit with acute COVID. So the jury is definitely still out on whether obesity is a risk factor for long COVID. But if you sort of think about the heterogeneity of obesity and the heterogeneity of long COVID, I would suspect that once we really begin to describe carefully what happens with, for example, the development of diabetes in the post-COVID time period. I would not be surprised if that type of consequence, longer-term consequence, is associated with pre-existing obesity. But that really is a theory. We have not had enough studies to really draw any definitive conclusions. I have seen one study, but again, this is not confirmed at this point. It's just a potential signal that the more autoimmune-mediated long COVID, as we're seeing a lot of people calling it, obesity may be a risk factor for that. But it's not really clear. Many of these studies are very short duration, a month, 60 days. You know, what our patients want to know is what happens to me in the long run. What is this the way I'm going to be from now on? Or is this going to go away? Lots and lots of questions that still need to be answered as we gain more and more experience with this disease.
3: I agree. There are more questions than answers. The jury is out on how it's going to shape up, but I think that the relationship between diabetes and insulin resistance leading to an increased incidence of type 2 diabetes is, is something that's going to take years to really evaluate completely. Because there are some people, as you pointed out, may take years before we actually see what the effect of the increased insulin resistance is. So people who are borderline, whose uh, pancreas may have been able to keep up, those people will be pushed over into type 2 diabetes earlier. And it could take a long time to figure that all out.
0: One of the fascinating studies is I know there's a lot of work going on right now at Yale in, in one of the immunology labs that found that some people with long COVID are actually cured by getting the vaccine. So that's a fascinating. <laughs> Uh, finding that if patients waiting for the data to become definitive, here's yet another reason to potentially consider getting vaccinated because there is a chance that it might help long COVID symptoms. Whether or not that's true for people with and without obesity is anyone's guess, but certainly you don't want long COVID because in about 40% of patients, they can't return to full-time work. So it can be pretty devastating.
2: I want to ask about educating patients and helping patients to advocate for themselves because one of your passions and where you have a great expertise is is really in educating patients and helping them to make better, more informed decisions. What has the pandemic taught you or how has it changed your perspective or the urgency to continue along this pathway to help patients to advocate for themselves and help patients to really get the education that they need? since there isn't enough time generally face to face with healthcare providers how has covid and the pandemic really changed how you feel about that and and what we as healthcare providers and what people who go to see their healthcare providers can do going forward
0: well the covid pandemic has brought a lot of very interesting information to the fore our outgoing NIH director who is a geneticist Francis Collins actually said a couple of months ago that in retrospect, seeing what happens with vaccine hesitancy, he wished he had invested a little bit more money into non-basic science such as behavioral science or communication science, because it's pretty clear that we're in our infancy in terms of understanding how best to communicate with patients in a way that actually influences their decision making. It's clear that just providing facts is not enough, but we also have seen that the information that comes out is very confusing to a lot of people. And one of the experiences that we had with the innumerable programs going out in the community talking to people about the vaccine was they, they wanted to hear it from their doctor. And I think individual patients have this relationship with the doctor, which is really hard to overstate how important that connection is. You see a doctor longitudinally several times, you develop a relationship and you trust what they say and what they recommend for you. So, Public health messaging is important. What the CDC says is important. What is coming out from the government at the federal and at the state and at the city level is important. But really what we heard loud and clear is that people wanna hear medical advice from their doctor. And this is something I've devoted a fair amount of energy to is the reality that the way we set up our healthcare system doesn't make it easy for that to actually happen especially in primary care where there's this huge pressure to try to see as many patients in as short a period of time as you can. And a lot of times primary care physicians would love to spend a little bit more time educating their patients and answering their questions. I think this was the other thing that was so incredibly important is many of the questions were just, you know, you could look online and get answers, but they wanted to hear, people wanted to hear it from their doctor. So this is a a real frustration in primary care and in my division, I'm the chief of general internal medicine and the doctors that we have both in the hospital and in the clinic, Uh, this is a perennial complaint that they just wish they had more time to actually talk to their patients and make sure that they get the information that they need in a way that the patients can understand. You know, if you have 15 minutes or 10 minutes to see the patient, you're often finding that you're talking as quickly as you possibly can to try to get all the information in. And that's Really, not where we should be heading. You know, we need to figure out ways that we can get more quality time between physicians and patients and potentially developing tools that can give basic information in an easily understood way to patients before they see the doctor so that when they go in and those precious minutes that they have face to face, they can really have a very personalized discussion about what the patient's goals and objectives are, and then develop a treatment plan or answer questions in such a way that it really answers that person's individual needs and meets their needs. So yes, communication is absolutely essential and we really need to do a better job figuring out how to give people the information that they need in order to make the best healthcare decisions.
3: I know this is a topic, this type of education is a topic that you've been interested in for for years, and uh, I've been interested in this in the area of obesity, because uh, we have a very effective program, we have the tools we need, but it's very clear that these tools don't exist in primary care, that doctors aren't educated about how to get people to lose weight, what kind of advice to give. And just teaching them to do it isn't going to give them more time to do it. What they need are resources which will streamline the process. And Given our success and the lack of success in primary care, that's been a, a very big interest of ours to put this into a, a platform that we've developed in order to really revolutionize the care of patients with obesity in the community. Do you have any advice for us on what we could be doing better in this effort? I mean, I know we haven't really spoken about this at any length, but what do you think we should be thinking about?
0: There's a couple of things that I think are tricky issues. I think the first thing is to shift away from blaming the patient for overweight and obesity and recognizing that there are these pathophysiologic changes that really more resemble a disease than the result of poor healthcare decisions health behavior is not this thing that happens in isolation. So even smoking cigarettes, you know, the great majority of people who smoke cigarettes do so because we're so bad at relieving their anxiety. People smoke cigarettes because it it relieves anxiety. And what we have to offer as physicians for anxiety is often it falls short. So we don't really understand the complex behavioral environments that lead to obesity. But we we certainly at this point, and I'm sure you would agree, know that there are real derangements in the organism once you have reached the point of obesity where it's really much better to think of it as a disease and i think that's a major shift that hasn't happened in the general public and it can really help with the stigma you know acknowledging the stigma that is associated with obesity and supporting people through that you know it causes a tremendous amount of emotional distress. So not only is it better to think about it as a disease, but it's also important to recognize the needs of patients for support and legitimization. We don't want to gaslight them. Uh, yes, they are being discriminated against because they have obesity. So, you know, it's a complex thing, but I think this sort of shift away from blaming the patient for their obesity and recognizing that they actually have a disease that needs treatment, that is a major educational objective. I would say, that's a departure. People are gonna be surprised to hear that. I think the second thing is just like many diseases that we treat, there are medications that are available, but many of the medications that are being used to treat obesity are not necessarily FDA approved. So we saw the pushback from the general public when we saw the COVID vaccines being authorized for emergency use by the FDA. And that was interpreted by the public as, oh, there hasn't been enough research. So public perception, I think, is a really important thing. put your finger on the pulse. But many people don't realize that somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of prescriptions that are written in this country are written for off-label use. So in the minds of people who don't really understand what is off-label use, they could equate that to emergency use authorization and cutting corners or using medications in an unsafe way. And that really is a very simplistic and almost twisted way of looking at it because these medications are approved for other indications. But a a good example that I like to use that's sort of neutral is Benadryl. You know, it's an over-the-counter medication that was designed and is approved for the treatment of allergy symptoms. But it makes a lot of people drowsy. So there's actually a fair number of people who use it as a sleep aid. Is it indicated? Does it say anything that, you know, it has been researched to be a sleep aid? No. But people do this all the time. And I think that this is a really good neutral example that helps people To understand what is off label use, you know, metformin, in in every trial of metformin, there was weight loss in the metformin arm of the trial. It is being used primarily in diabetes, but that doesn't mean that you can't also recognize what happened in the trial as a sort of a bystander benefit and then use it therapeutically. Thank you for bringing up those important points, Dr. Safford. This is, you know, you're
2: taking words out of our mouth. We spend so much time telling our patients and anybody who will listen, you know, that obesity is a disease. It's not a matter of a lack of willpower. It's not a lifestyle program. And, you know, that's such an important part of our conversation with every single patient as many times as it takes for them to really internalize it. Because until we're on the same page with that, it's very hard to make progress and, and to continue the conversation. So that is a huge, huge, huge part of what we do. And then the conversation surrounding medications is definitely complicated. And everything that's been happening with the COVID vaccine has complicated people's opinions of health information and what they can trust, what they can't trust, what it means to have something be FDA approved and the whole process. So it's been a very interesting time. You know, we don't have too much time left, so I'd love to end with maybe one or two last questions. In our field, we talk about how the COVID pandemic, one of the maybe few positive things to actually come out of this awful situation is, as we've talked about, the focus on obesity being something to take more seriously. And we've definitely seen a trend towards people taking obesity more seriously, some of the other um, positive things have been really the focus on on the need for technology to improve access to care and the willingness for people to engage in in technology around their health, because we kind of got thrown into it overnight and and it works much better than we thought. So I think combining all of our brains with the obesity medicine and educating patients, helping patients advocate for themselves, sounds like we would have a great, great collaboration here. I'd love to end with one or two questions about COVID fatigue. It sounds like so many people are just like, oh, I cannot listen to anything more about COVID. I want this to be behind us. So there's so many news updates still, and you know, a lot of people have moved on. What do you think is still something that's interesting that people may not know about or something that's surprising for those who have COVID fatigue or something that's coming in the pipeline that people would be interested to hear about in this field of COVID?
0: You know, I'm sure there's a lot coming. I think more information about long COVID. I would love to see a more robust conversation around long COVID. Is long COVID going to be a lifelong disease? Is it not? There are many reasons to think about as we enter this phase of, oh, the pandemic is behind us. It's not really behind us. I think living with it is not necessarily pretending that it doesn't exist anymore. The big question is what happens from the perspective of insurance coverage? How do people, what do they do? Disability benefits, cut back to part-time work you know, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about long COVID, how we are going to help people get back on their feet, you know, what does their future look like? So I think there's going to be a lot more work and a lot more publications about that. And I would hate to see the people who have long COVID sort of be lost in this eagerness to put this pandemic behind us? Because I think there's a substantial number of people, millions of people potentially in the United States that may have these long-term consequences that prevent adequate functioning. So I think recognizing that this is a disease, it's just going to be part of our infectious disease spectrum. I think there's a lot of work being done to try to craft adequate treatments. Uh, So we have some acute treatments that show promise so that if you do get acute COVID, if you start it soon enough that you can actually avoid long-term complications or severe complications. And that's especially important for obese patients. Because it does look like these treatments decrease hospitalization and severe symptoms. So, you know, keeping an eye on the pipeline of medications that are being developed for the acute stage, that would be very important to get out to our obese patients because they are among those that would benefit from this kind of treatment. And just like with our, our influenza, where we have medications that can treat people if they catch it early enough. That's the big challenge there is making sure that people reach out to their healthcare providers and get it in time for it to be effective, which is basically the first three days. So you don't have a lot of time. But other than that, I think we have to keep our eyes on variants. We know that the global South continues not to have access to vaccines and very small proportions of populations in some countries are vaccinated. So there is the possibility of the emergence of new strains that we definitely want to keep our eye on.
3: Agreed. We really have to uh, hope for the best. But it sounds like we may be turning a corner. I don't know if it's the last corner But it's a corner, and hopefully things will continue to improve. So I think that's it for today's podcast. This is the Weight Matters podcast. I'm Dr. Louis Aroni. I'm here with Dr. Katherine Saunders.
1: Thank you for listening to Weight Matters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To learn more about how Dr. Saunders and Dr. Aroni are working to transform specialized treatments for chronic conditions through the best in medical science and advanced technologies, visit Intellehealth.co backslash podcast. And be sure to follow, rate, and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts.